Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at, at two verses, verses 12 and 13, as we continue our series, Joy in All Circumstances. Uh, John Murray was a, a Scottish theologian and professor at Princeton and Westminster Theological Seminaries in the 20th century. And, and he once wrote, In every major doctrine in the New Testament, there is an apparent paradox which can not, in and of itself, be resolved in the mind of man. So let me, let me read that one more time. It's a little bit of a mouthful. In every major doctrine in the New Testament, there's an apparent paradox which cannot, in and of itself, be resolved in the mind of man. Now, at first glance, this is a, a staggering statement. This is an unsettling statement. This kind of sounds like a borderline heretical statement. But we have to understand that Murray's not suggesting that Scripture is full of contradictions or inaccuracies. He's simply saying Scripture has certain doctrines that our finite minds cannot and will not ever fully comprehend. For example, last week, as we looked at Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, we saw that the incarnation of Christ is one of these doctrines. In verses 6 and 7, when Paul describes the person of Christ, he writes both, He was in the form of God and He was born in the likeness of men. And we see this throughout the New Testament. On one hand, Christ is fully God. He is the preeminent, preexistent, eternal Word. He was with God and was God before the foundations of the world. He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the giver of life who came to give us the right to be called children of God. But then... On the other hand, Christ is fully man, too. Christ took on human flesh and, and dwelt among us. He was born of woman. He set aside his rights, privileges, and powers as the Son of God. He, he veiled his glory so that he could live in scarcity, suffer as an outsider, serve and not be served, follow the Father's plan by being obedient to the point of death. On the cross. So throughout the New Testament, Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity are both presented as truth. Another New Testament paradox is the Trinity. Scripture speaks of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but then we read in 1 John, the apostle says, if you say God is one, you do well. In other places it says that God is one. So we have these two conflicting ideas that there is one God existing in three persons. And then a third example, and probably the most controversial example of all, is the tension between God's sovereignty and human free will and salvation. And again, both of these concepts are found in Scripture. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, when Jesus sat down with the Pharisee Nicodemus, he told him salvation was dependent on two things rebirth, and faith. He says you must be reborn, which is a, a miracle of God that Nicodemus has nothing to do with. And then he says you must believe, which is a, a decision that's solely dependent on Nicodemus. And so 
Scripture clearly teaches both these ideas of, of God being sovereign over salvation and man being responsible and accountable for making a decision in salvation. And so when we encounter these perplexing and, and seemingly contradictory doctrines of the faith, we face two temptations. Either we can avoid them altogether, this is where you, you stay in the shallow end with your, with your floaties on and you don't pursue deeper knowledge. You go comfortable with just having a simple baseline understanding of a complex issue. Or you decide that, that one way is right and the other way is wrong. And you affirm some part of God's word while forsaking other parts of God's word. And when you do that, you usually find yourself barreling down a road towards heresy. And so in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, um, as we continue looking at this, this, this bigger section on our sanctification, Paul helps us to strike an appropriate balance with yet another paradox, the Christian faith. You'll remember that he's, he's building in this section off a foundational idea that we see back in chapter 1, that, that we as, as Christ followers are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he uses this whole section from chapter 1, verse 27, to chapter 2, verse 18, for motivating your sanctification, your, your spiritual growth, your progress in holiness, righteousness, and Christ-likeness. And even last week, when Paul kind of takes a little bit of a detour to, to examine Christ's humiliation and exaltation, we see him fulfilling that same purpose. We see him saying, if you are in Christ, you are called to live a life in light of Christ's example as a humble and obedient servant. And so as we think about the, the concept of sanctification collectively, we we, we're going to wrestle with a, a, a similar paradox individually. And you may find yourself, as we work through this, asking, who's responsible for my sanctification? Is it me, or is it God, or is it a little bit of both? And, and not to give too much away before we even read the text, but you probably already know that the answer is, it's a little bit of both. It's going to require you working out your salvation, and God working in you. So let's read Paul's thoughts, starting in verse 12. He writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, the, the question at hand is, is who is responsible for your salvation? Who is fostering your, your spiritual progress, growth, and maturity? Is it you or is it God? And in the simplest terms, the answer is both. You play a role and, and God plays a role. That, that's what Paul is saying there. Verse 12, work out your own salvation. And then verse 13, he says, for God works in you. So Paul says, you work out and then God works in. I mean, that, that's the outline for today. Really simple. Verse 12, Paul explains how you work out. 
In verse 13, he explains how God works in. And so let's look at these two concepts and see how they work together for your sanctification. So first, as you are sanctified in Christ, as you are molded and shaped in his image, you work out. You work out your own salvation. And Paul uses this phrase, work out, which, which creates a very easy illustration for us, right? We, we, we're familiar with this, this concept. If you want stronger muscles, you work out with weights. If you want better stamina, you work out on a treadmill. If you want a healthier diet, you work out a meal plan. And in the same way, if you are concerned with increasing your spiritual growth, then you work out by increasing your spiritual discipline. Look, we, we have a tendency to overcomplicate our relationship with God. And what I mean is that we have this tendency to get, get sidetracked by these big, deep life questions where we agonize over God's purpose, God's plan, God's direction. And while those are, are valuable, important, necessary deliberations, we must realize God has really simplified the complicated for us in a lot of ways. I mean, all of those questions... Well, what is God's purpose for me? What is God's plan for me? What is God's direction for me? All of those questions in this section can be answered in this section of Philippians. I mean, the answer, we saw it in, in chapter 1. The answer is live in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know, we get, we get bogged down in, in mapping out the next year or the next five years, the next 25 years of, of life. And, and listen, I'm, I'm here for all of it. I, I have spreadsheets for my spreadsheets. I love having a plan. But we can't overvalue potential future outcomes so much that we undervalue the present moment. God is is working out your future, so you should focus on working out your present. I mean, remember what James says in his epistle. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You can make plans for tomorrow, but at the same time, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what this afternoon will bring. So often your best course of action is, is asking the question, how can I walk in faith and obedience right now? What is the next right thing that, that I can do? And then Paul says that the formula for that is really simple. You trust in the gospel and, and you live out the gospel. And in verse 12, he points to two ways that you should be working out your salvation. And the first one is this. Paul says, understand your position. In other words, your works for God are driven by your understanding of God. Notice verse 12 begins with the word, Therefore, and as Bible teachers often say, when you see a therefore, you must ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And I know that's cheesy, but you won't soon forget it. And in most cases, the therefore 
is therefore connecting the, the current section to the previous section. And we could certainly make a case for the therefore at the start of verse 12 to be calling all the way back to chapter 1, verse 27. But I think we should pay particular attention to verses 5 through 11 that we looked at last week. In verses 5 through 11, Paul introduces Christ as the model of submission and obedience, as the model of, of true humility. He says that Christ didn't keep a firm grasp on his equality with God. Instead, he laid down his crown. He took on human flesh. And, and when he came, he didn't come as a king. He came as a bondservant. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He sacrificed himself by dying on a cross. And then because of that work on earth, he was glorified in heaven. He was exalted by God. He was given a name which is above every other name. So Paul is saying, since Christ provided you with a perfect example, since Christ showcased humble obedience and willing submission for you, since he charted a path of exaltation for you, your response is following him, imitating him, being like him. In verses 5 through 11, before calling you into further obedience in the name of Christ, Paul forces you to reflect on the cross of Christ. Because he understands if your eyes are fixated on Calvary, if your heart and, and, and your mind are wrapped up with the cross, your obedience will be driven by love and not legalism. Your obedience ceases to be a duty and starts to become a delight. And again, as we, we discussed last week, the, the gospel is not be like Jesus so you can be saved. The gospel is, is be like Jesus because you are saved. That's what your sanctification should look like. You, you, you are being sanctified in Christ because you have been justified by Christ. Don't miss what Paul also says there at the start of verse 12. He writes, therefore, my beloved, don't overlook that. Don't miss that, Christ follower. Before Paul writes, work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling, he says, hey, brother in Christ, hey, sister in Christ, remember you are loved. Remember you are loved. Ligon Duncan says that when God saves us, he does at least three things for us. He always does more, but he never does less. And first, he accepts us. Not because we're worthy. Not because we're deserving. Not because we're talented or, or good looking or smart or full of potential. No, he forgives us and, and pardons us. Not because we are righteous, but because Christ is righteous. And his righteousness has become our righteousness. And then second, he not only accepts us, he adopts us. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He welcomes us into his family. He calls us sons. He calls us daughters. He grants us all the rights and privileges of his future estate. And then the time we have left on this earth, he 
He changes us. So he accepts us, he adopts us, and he changes us. And this is the process of sanctification. He purifies our hearts. He renews our minds. He motivates our hands and our feet. He actively and powerfully works in us so that we would progressively die to sin and become more and more like Christ. And so if you're in Christ, you must keep these gospel truths in the front of your mind and on the tip of your tongue. You must preach the gospel to yourself day after day. You must understand your position. And then, second, you must prioritize your obedience. Paul continues, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, let me clarify. You don't work for your salvation. Christ already accomplished that on your behalf. In Christ, if you trust in Him, you are justified, you are redeemed, you are accepted, you are adopted. So you don't work for your salvation, but you do work out your salvation. Paul's essentially saying, just as you always obey, continue to obey. If I'm with you or if I'm away from you, continue to obey. Whether you feel like it or not, continue to obey. When your life is full of blessings, and when your life is full of burdens, continue to obey. You know, some contemporary Bible scholars and, and theologians really bend over backwards trying to pit the, the writings of Paul and James against each other. They say that you know Paul is the, the grace guy and James is the works guy. And, and there is a clear tension in their writing in the New Testament. You know, in Romans 3, Paul says, we are justified apart from the works of the law. That is, grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And then in James 2, James says, a person is not justified by faith alone. But I want, to, I want you to realize that they don't contradict each other. You know, for Paul, this, this teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is a consistent thread through his teaching. It's a vital concept for him based on his personal experiences. And a lot of times he's writing to churches who are, are dealing with these, these threads of, of legalism and Jewish tradition. And they're struggling, that they've, they've been burdened with the law, and they're struggling in understanding that Christ took the law and, and, and put it on his back on the cross and took care of it. See, when Jesus saved Paul, he was saved from, from, from legalism. Paul was a, a boy scout of a Pharisee. He kept the rules. He checked the boxes. He advanced in his career. He obtained power, influence, and wealth. But his worldly accomplishments meant nothing in God's economy. He still stood apart from a holy God until Christ saved him. And after his conversion, he spent the rest of his life teaching, preaching, and writing about God's grace and human sin. He's always pointing back to the cross to remind us that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essential doctrine of our faith. And James wouldn't disagree with Paul about God's grace. He would simply add that faith in God must produce works for God. In chapter 2 of his epistle, James builds this case by referencing two people in the Old Testament who were on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum. 
but who both lived obedient lives. He mentions Abraham, the, the patriarch of the faith, the one whose bloodline could be traced all the way to Jesus, and he mentions Rahab, who was a converted prostitute. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, where, where Abraham was counted righteous before God, and then he references Genesis 22, when Abraham's faith was put to the test, when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. God had promised Abraham a son many years ago, and he had waited and waited for this heir to be born. And then suddenly, after God has fulfilled that promise, God asks him to lay his son on the altar. God was going to take away what was most precious to him. And Abraham couldn't have fully understood God's plan for Isaac. But he prepared the altar to make the sacrifice anyway. He laid his son down and he drew a knife and prepared to kill him. But just before Abraham's knife pierced Isaac, an angel called out to stop him. In Genesis 15, Abraham was justified for his faith. In Genesis 22, Abraham's faith was justified by his works. Was this same pattern with Rahab. We don't have the same amount of background information for her, but we do know that she knew of Israel's God. In Joshua 2, when Joshua sent spies to scope out Jericho, she hid these spies in her roof and uncovered for them in front of her king. She told them she knew God was about to give the promised land of the Jewish people, and she wanted to help them in their quest. She could have easily released the spies into town. She could have reported their whereabouts to the king. But she chose to put her life in danger so God could overtake Jericho. She was justified for her faith, and her faith was justified by her works. See, Ahab, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham and Rahab, put those together there, Abraham and Rahab proclaimed faith in God before the events of Genesis 22 and Joshua 2. They were believers in God before their faith was put at the test, but their obedience demonstrated their genuine faith. And so when you put Paul and James's teaching together, what you get is, is an understanding that genuine faith begins in trusting Christ alone. The genuine faith is built on trusting Christ alone. But at the same time, genuine faith is, is more than empty claims. You can say you're a Christian just like you can say you're a Volkswagen Beetle. Genuine faith is more than in head knowledge. You can know any number of facts about Jesus without really knowing Jesus. And genuine faith is more than ritual and tradition. You can come to church Sunday after Sunday. You can go through the motions. You can spend your entire life around Jesus without ever really submitting your life to Jesus. So yes, genuine faith begins with trusting in Christ alone, but genuine faith is, is demonstrated by an obedient life. Now before we move to the next verse, we should explain why Paul mentions fear and trembling as a motivation for our sanctification at the end of verse 12. By fear, he means terror or alarm. Trembling indicates quaking with dread, and Paul chooses these words intentionally because he wants to remind us about the serious nature 
of sin. Don't forget, start of verse 12, he addresses the church as beloved. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are forgiven. But Paul also wants you to know that you've been granted freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Stephen Lawson puts it this way, there should be nothing casual about our approach to holiness. God is not a kindly spiritual grandfather. God is not a teddy bear. God is not a kitten. God is a lion who loves us, but his love does not mean that we're at liberty to domesticate him. We are called to tremble joyfully in our walk with God. So we work out. And then we get to verse 13. Let's read it again. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sometimes when my children are fighting over a toy or arguing over the, the rules of a game or, or whatever it may be on that particular day, and I'm, I'm preoccupied with other things, I'll come into the room and just give them a simple command. I'll say, hey, figure it out. They'll take turns pleading their, their respective cases, and I'll, I'll repeat my original charge. I, I don't care who had it first. I don't care how you played the game last time. I don't care what made you mad at each other. Please figure it out. Figure it out. And I'll leave them alone. And do you know what happens next? They don't figure it out. They never figure it out. I don't know why I, I tell them to figure it out on their own because they, they never do. So I'm always forced to, to come back to re-enter the conversation and to help them work through it. And so we should be thankful that God isn't an absentee father who establishes rules and standards and expectations and leaves us alone to figure it out. As you are, are working out your salvation, God is also working in. He works in you. He works with you. He works through you. Paul says to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul references the two promises of God's help that we have in our sanctification. And the first one is this, God's presence encourages you. Paul says God works in you. He's not talking in a metaphorical sense. He's talking in a literal sense. He's emphasizing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. During the Last Supper, Jesus promised the disciples would soon experience the support of another dweller who would come and, and, and dwell, another helper who would come and dwell in them and teach them all things and bring them remembrance of all things. And the New Testament authors wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we understand their writings through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, we would struggle to understand God's Word. You know, when Lacey and I are reading a, a book together, I always prefer when she reads it first. I always prefer when she's a few chapters ahead because she 
likes to highlight and, and underline. And so when I come behind her, I have the benefit of seeing the important points jump off the page. The Holy Spirit does the same thing for us when we read, study, and pray through Scripture. He works as a, a holy highlighter, but He doesn't merely teach and inform us. He also calls us to live according to the truth. He encourages us with the truth, and He challenges and convicts us with the truth. He's our conscience. He's the angel on our shoulder. He's the voice in the back of our heads. He argues with us, rebukes us, inspires us, advises us, and most of all, He keeps pointing us back to the gospel. And for our part, we must continually set ourselves up to hear his message. We must be willing to receive his message. We can't cut ourselves off from the source. We must read, study, and meditate on the word personally and corporately. We must pray, worship, and discuss in response. We need to give the second advocate the opportunity to work in our lives. The reality is the Holy Spirit can only bring God's word to your remembrance in the present if you study God's word in the past. He can only bring it to you in the present if you study it in the past. You know, if you fill your heart and mind with Scripture, then you'll have it spill out in the moments when you need it. I don't know if you've ever watched a, a small child try to pour a drink. Uh, Parker, our, our oldest, is, is seven, and she uh, has decided that she likes to, you know, she's going to fix drinks for herself anytime that she's allowed to, um, which in some ways is a breath of fresh air because it feels like our kids ask for something to drink roughly 96 times a day. So it's good that she's, you know, wanting to to do her part, but she's really bad at it. You know, she'll go in and she'll grab the fullest gallon of milk that's in the house and she will pour and she will pour and sometimes you're watching her pour from across the room and you're thinking she's going to stop and she doesn't until it's overflowed and it's sort of spilled out everywhere. You know, we, we, this is what the Spirit does for us. If you fill your heart and mind with Scripture, it's going to spill out when you need it like a cup overflowing. When you're walking in darkness, the Spirit will reassure you. When you're wrestling with temptation, the Spirit will strengthen you. When you're riddled with anxiety, the Spirit will comfort you. When you're veering away from the right path, the Spirit will rebuke you. When you're overcome with trouble, the Spirit will inspire you. When you're sharing the gospel, the Spirit will instruct you. And so we have the promise of, of God's presence to motivate us or to encourage us. And then second, along with God's presence encouraging you, God's pleasure motivates you. Many of you know my, my favorite verse is Romans 8.28, where Paul reminds us that, that for Christ followers, all things are working together for our good and His glory. And here in Verse 13, Paul makes a similar statement about God's ultimate goal for us. He said he works in us to cause us to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God wants to inspire, encourage, and energize both our will and our work. 
both our desires and our deeds. During my sermon prep, I was reading John MacArthur's commentary on Philippians chapter 2, and he does a really masterful job of explaining how God influences our will and our work for His good pleasure. And so to start with, think about your will. In the simplest terms, God wants your will to be centered on doing what is right. But you can't snap your fingers and change your behavior. You can't change your outward actions without addressing your inward inclinations. Right? All of your behavior rises out of your will, your desires, your longings, so you have to address your heart. Now, how does God help us do this? Well, God produces two things inside of us to change us. The first one is, is what MacArthur calls holy discontent. This simply means that you're discontent with your level of holiness. You're, you're unsatisfied with your spiritual state. You're burdened by your persistent sin. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever experienced a moment of sincere brokenness? Have you ever been grieved over your failure? Have you ever lamented or, or cried over your tendency to commit the same sin over and over? That's holy discontent. And while I would just encourage you to never spend extended periods of time floundering in your shortcomings, I would also say you you should regularly consider your sin patterns and make plans for, for fighting back against them. So that, that's holy discontent. Then on the other side, you have holy aspiration. As MacArthur puts it, this is... This is the other side of it. This is a longing for something better, for something pure, for something holy, for something righteous, for something true. This is a longing to be godly, a longing to be virtuous, a longing to be victorious, a longing to be like Christ. And so through holy discontent and holy aspiration, God produces in us a hatred for sin and a love for righteousness. And Paul gives us a personal example of this in the next chapter. And in chapter 3, he provides a perfect illustration of this process. In verses 7 through 11, he, he lays out an impossible standard for the church. He essentially says, you should make Christ the number one priority in every part of your life. And by comparison, you should consider everything else and everyone else in your life to be complete and utter rubbish, to be, to be waste. You put Christ at the top of your list and you put everything else just down in the dirt. And we certainly understand how our lives should be ordered. And we know Christ should be at the top of the list. But at the same time, what Paul's requiring here, this, this mindset, this perspective is so much easier said than done. And I encourage you, read 7 through 11 when you go home, and we'll, we'll get there at some point as we're working through Philippians. 
But after laying out that standard in 7 through 11, in verse 12, we can breathe a small sigh of relief because Paul writes, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Isn't it just a little bit freeing to hear Paul admit, I'm not there yet. Don't you feel the weight come off your shoulders a little bit when he says, listen, I'm still a work in progress. See, that's holy discontent. And then notice what else he says in verse 12. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus made me his own. Then in verse 14, he says, I press on towards the goal for the prize, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's holy aspiration. And so in that next chapter in Philippians 3, you can hear both holy discontent and holy aspiration flowing out of Paul's heart and onto the page. You can hear him saying, I'm not there yet. I'm still working through some things, but I'll tell you this, I want more of Christ. I want to know Christ on a deeper level. You can have the world give me Jesus. And when you consider Paul's experiences, this is a a truly astounding statement because Paul met Jesus in person. Paul heard his audible voice. Paul wrote 75% of the New Testament. Paul was the greatest missionary of the first century and probably of all the centuries, and yet he still says, I'm not there yet. I press on. I want more of Christ. See, God starts with your will. Because your will shapes your work. See, if you start cultivating that mindset that Paul has, I want less of the world, I want more of Christ, your will will shape your work. This is so important because far too often we get this backwards. When we're working to shape the next generation, we're working to disciple new believers, and we're working to engage with the lost, we, we address their work and we overlook their will. Or to put that another way, we educate them on God's standard before we shower them with God's love. And as a result, many times they walk away with this picture of of God as a cruel taskmaster and not a loving father. We can't swim against the current here. God gives us the model. He starts with your will. He cultivates your heart to hate sin and love righteousness. Then he watches with pleasure as your will becomes his will and, and your work becomes his work. This is what sanctification should look like. It's a two-way street. It always involves you working out and God working in. You work and He works. You strive and He strives. You grind and He grinds. And as a result, you will be blessed and He will be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for 
your word and the way that it challenges us and shapes us and molds us into the image of Christ. Father, my my prayer this morning as we gather for this last Sunday of 2021 is that we would take Paul's words to heart and we would just use this as an opportunity for self-evaluation. That we would, would think about the coming year and consider what you would want us to will and to work next year. What habits we should change, what relationships we should reconcile, what attitudes we should adjust, what ministries we should take on, what wrongs we should make right. Father, show us individually and collectively how we might look more like Christ in 2022. As we work out and you work in. Father, we are grateful for the cross. And we're thankful for the ministry and responsibility that you've given us here at Charity. We look forward to what you have for us in the coming year. So Father, we love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.